subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, everyone. Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail, and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like rain, prams or wading. Or poodles, doodles, noodles, or food, rude and dude. Those two are about the history of manners and the history of cool, which I really want to do. We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example... Who knew that the history of monkeys is in fact all about discovery and exploration, fear and fascination, and it's also, thanks to our new friends at Foreign Field Living History Group, Paul, Kyle and Rory, it's all about national service. This comes from an anecdote of one of their shows uh, around the 1950s Malaya Emergency Living History Camp at Sherwood Forest, and they had a veteran who came to talk to them, and... They asked him what he ate, and they expected to get things about ration packs and everything. And he said, well, you know, occasionally we got chickens from the camp and villages. You get curry powder, lots of rice. I ate monkey once. It was all right, but I won't eat it again. <laughs> <laughs> I ate monkey once. Yes. That's, that's good. Thanks, guys, for that. Let the man sitting opposite me, let's just say that if, if history was burned, James would find its ashes and he'd put it in a little urn on a shelf and worship it. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the Ian Botham of history. Wild, woolly and talented and can cart a ball all over the park all day long. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Hello, Sam. Hello, hello. Um, 
So we're going to do cricket. We certainly are. We've been um, immersed in cricket for the last few weeks. Uh, we wanted to do this a little bit earlier um, with the World Cup on and the women's ashes on. Uh, but it's taken us a while to do it. However, I have managed um, also to um, conduct an interview with the legendary Vic Marks. So that was thoroughly enjoyable. And we're going to be releasing that Vic Marks interview as a, uh, a separate little bonus episode. We certainly are. But we decided we needed to tackle this properly. Cricket has an enormous history. Yeah. And it's a history that is immersed in 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 history itself, connected. We can think we can think about cricket from all sorts of conventional angles. You can think about when cricket was invented, when it was first played. Um, it's thought to date to the 16th century. Mm -hmm. And there is a record in 1597, a man who is in a dispute over land in Guildford in Surrey. Um, in court, uh, basically recalls having played cricket on that spot with his childhood friends 50 years beforehand. Right. Um, I'm sure it can go back much, much earlier than that as well. Uh -huh. uh, there's, there are ideas that it's in, in Saxon times. Um, in 1610, two men who don't attend church on a Sunday uh, get into trouble because instead they are playing cricket. Mm. So it's it's fascinating how you can pick it up incidentally in yeah. the in the archives. But you can look at the how it develops as the national game. You can look at the way in which it suddenly becomes connected to empire yeah. and it sort of explodes around the world. You can look at it in terms of education. This idea of it's not just that's not cricket. Um, you know this sort of way of exporting. English values yeah. around the place and teaching people in certain ways. So it it's connected to apartheid in the you know uh, during the, um, the sort of seventies. Um, so it's a huge subject. It is. I'm I'm slightly not troubled by it, but I couldn't work out whether it was an unexpected subject or whether it was a established subject we need to pull apart in unexpected ways. Because I think a lot of people who uh, listen to this are interested in sports history. You'll obviously know there is a history of cricket, um, but being able to kind of pull that apart in, in in unexpected ways is also helpful. But I think for other people, they may not realise that actually the history of cricket is is fantastic. And in fact, because it's so bundled up in all of these things that you've mentioned, it's it's like a perfect canvas for histories of the unexpected. It's all about gambling mm. as well. 18th century explodes. It's all about gambling and people make a lot of money out of cricket. Yeah. Uh, so much so that they have to bring in a limit of £100, I think it is, uh, to stop people. I mean, it, that's still, in the back in the day, a lot of money. Um, but it shows how popular it is. It's not just today that syndicates are making a fortune out of cricket. I think the first time I came across a mention of cricket and history was in maybe when I was about 19, um, my first degree, uh, when I was doing history and I did a course on naval history, which sort of established my life as being a, being a maritime historian. Um, but there was, a, there was an account of some violence at a cricket match. Ooh. And um, so not only was it, was, was, and this is in the 18th century, not only was cricket attracting massive crowds in the 18th century, but um, completely uncontrollable crowds as well. So not only to do with the amount of people, but to do with um, behaviour en masse watching a sporting event. Violence. I think the word was riot. A cricket bat as a weapon as well. Mm. I went to the kind of school where cricket bats were weapons. Uh, I remember I, I, was a, I did nothing during summers of my childhood except play cricket. Mm. Occasionally football, but, but I was cricket mad. And occasionally... Um, Weapons were made out of cricket bats. Did you go to that kind of school? 
Um, I, I went to a school where we played cricket. I'm not sure whether it was a fighting school. Oh. <laughs> Um, I have a, an, an interesting aspect to cricket at the moment because my daughter plays a lot of cricket. Mm. In fact, she, um, she opened the batting for Devon yesterday in a match against Dorset, in which she scored 50. Well done, Ms. Ms. Willis. Well done, Ms. Willis. Um, and I've been very interested in, in women's cricket and I was uh, listening to something on the radio about the history of the women's ashes Ooh. and where they were played. And um, did you know that the Women's World Cup, Cricket World Cup, was established before the Men's World Cup? No, I didn't. How cool was that? Two years before. Very cool. Yeah, really interesting. Um, so one of the problems was getting the women to be able to play at Lords, And the captain at the time, Rachel Hayhoe Flint. Yes. Very interesting name. We might talk about that a little bit later. Um, campaigned to have the women's team be allowed to play in on the hallowed turf. Everyone keeps calling it the hallowed turf of Lords. Absolutely. And um, for years and years, the MCC turned around and said, no, 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 no. And finally, um, they got the go-ahead. Now, what's interesting about this is that when the England team came down to field, they were fielding first, they got to the long room. Now, the long room is like the beating heart of Lords cricket ground. It's... Um, a majestic room full of um, significant historical oil paintings of mm. significant historical figures uh, and matches. Mm. Um, at the time, there was the women were <laughs> were allowed to play cricket at Lords, but there was a problem with them actually being allowed in the pavilion and in the changing rooms, and then in the long room. But they were eventually allowed in the in the pavilion. They were allowed in the changing rooms, but then they the women didn't feel that they could walk through the long room to go out to bat. So they went out a side door. But then the Australians came down and they went straight through the long room and went out to bat. And what was really interesting about this is that the uh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint and others in the team were interviewed about what was going on here. Like, why, would, why were they kind of paralysed by this fear They'd already been granted access to the pavilion but they, they, and, the, and the change rooms, but they couldn't go through the long room. And the answer really interested me because it was painted in terms of an Australian approach to history. <laughs> OK, so it, you know where I'm going with this. But basically, in terms of... Um, I, 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 I possibly do. They, have, they had um, little interest in history, no respect for history, no respect for tradition. The assumption being they don't have any history because they were established... Australia was established in the 18th century by the English. And um, it was fascinating the way they were talking about this. It made me think, is that actually a thing? The different countries and nationalities have different approaches to history. So in this case, it's, it's not, the question isn't whether they actually have a different approach to history. It's the fact that the English people thought that the Australians had a different approach to history. So there are two aspects of it. One is, do different nationalities have different approaches to history? And two, is there other examples of different nationalities thinking that other countries have different approaches to history? Quite probably, but I, it's also, it's, I imagine it's also the equivalent of trash talking. It's like we're going to walk right through your yeah. tradition and history and yeah. beat you on the field. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. I want to Excellent. find out more about that. Excellent. And uh, the, um, yeah, the, the English perception of Australianness. Mm, very good. Mm, whether it's real or not. Well, for me, having written our little book on world, the unexpected history of World War II, I'm still in a World War II mindset. And yeah. one of the things I was quite interested in while I was reading over you know, all sorts of stuff about 
cricket was the impact that it had on World War Two, uh, or the impact that World War Two had on cricket. Um, and of course, one of the immediate things is um, that it stops play. Basically, um, the West Indies tour is cancelled uh, in 1939 mm. uh, at Lords. All the sort of trophies, the ashes, the famous sort of ashes uh, urn is packed away for safekeeping. Um, I wonder if it's kept at Lords or gets sent somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. We could. I, I didn't read that deeply. No, we're funny to um, find out. But the, the um, you know, where the relics of cricket were sent. How, yeah. how important were they? Were they like the crown jewels? Yeah, yeah. I've no idea. I mean, it may be. Maybe it was just sort of boxed up and put away in the way that you know lots of things were were put away. A lot of a lot of um, a lot of rare books and manuscripts were sent across to America, um, and uh, never came back. Uh, unfortunately, the MCC cancelled their India tour, um, and. There were. It was more than that, though. It was the way that people actually thought about the war in terms of certainly serious cricketers used cricketing as a metaphor to actually understand, you know, certain aspects of of the war. Um, Sir Holmes Seaton Charles Montague Gordon, twelfth uh, Baronet Gordon of Embo Sutherland, wrote in the Cricketer magazine uh, that he described at the outbreak of war, England was now has now started the grim test match with Germany. Um, and he hmm. described it as akin to the when the ashes of civilization wow. were at stake. And if you have a look through... What was that published in? That was published in a magazine called The Cricketer. Oh. Uh, and if you have a look at The Cricketer around this time, there's lots of sort of cricketing metaphors used to describe it. Um, I mean, other writers felt that had the Germans learnt to play cricket, um, they would have been you know, much less likely to start the war. And that, again, is about the exporting of English values and fair play. And there were, there were trips across to Germany in 1934, I think it was, to try and get um, the scout movement to sort of have more in common with uh, Hitler Youth. Um, and one of the things that they wanted to do was, was teach the Germans to... Uh, German children to play cricket mm. and Ribbentrop uh, apparently said that the game is far too complex uh, for us to master. <laughs> so, um, it's a PR problem they're still struggling <laughs> it's with. A, it's a big PR problem but it's, it's very interesting then the way in which what, what war does is it disrupts first class cricket and county cricket um, but what you see is attempts by cricket fanatics to keep some sort of fledgling game going and there's a British Empire 11 that tours the country playing different different teams. Um, but m- more or less, it's international cricket is, is cancelled. Uh, it's cancelled in South Africa, it's cancelled in the West Indies, but not, strangely enough, in, in India. Um, there's also evidence that people played cricket abroad. So when they were out fighting, there's evidence of people having, of all sorts of people having taken cricket with them and played it in their free time, and even playing it in the prison camps as a way of keeping up morale and descriptions of basically people play. I mean, you don't necessarily travel with a cricket bat, um, but, you know, some people would have travelled with a sort of well-oiled, linseed oiled bat, um, but then improvising um, wickets and bales out of you know, a piece of corrugated iron or, or just a bucket turned upside down. And then when war is over in 1945, there's a series of victory tests um, which are which are put on very very hastily. 
Amazing. Um, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm going to Google victory tests. And yes. Things. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, it's so so it's a fascinating history about World War Two and cricket. So let's just stop and think about how we know about all of this as good historians. Yes. See, cricket is unusually good at producing paperwork. Oh, yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. And I was thinking about this the other day when um, I was watching my son play cricket and I realised that there is probably an archive at my old school where they've got the um, scorebooks from uh, 89, 90, yep. something like that. When I, of course, was captain of cricket (laughs) (laughs) in my unbeaten team. Um, No, but it'd be nice to go and see him. Yes, go and see that. I mean, I think the archives of cricket would be would be extraordinary um, because you know from 1880 you have the cricket reporting agency. So you have an agency that is basically set up to report you know all sorts of scores and test matches and and everything. You've got Wisden almanacs as well. Uh, that date back to the 19th century and continue today. You know, they're over 150 years old, and they're, the, I mean, they're wonderful. Do you have any? I don't. Oh, I, I used to collect them uh, oh. when I was uh, when I was younger uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to stop reading because they're, because they're like 1,500 pages long. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about wisdom um, in a little bit. Wisdom. Um, wisdom. Yeah, 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 yeah. D E N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I should talk about wisdom as well. Um, but they're, you know, I suppose you've got you've got that. You've then got all the um, evidence of county cricket, yeah. school cricket. But it's not just scorebooks. No, you've got also for the for the high matches. You've got match reports. Yes. So there's loads of stuff in the papers in the press. Yeah. Um, and nowadays there's there isn't very much reported. So I mean, if Exeter were playing a match, you might find something in a local paper. But you know, in the twenties and the thirties, uh, it was a massive thing. There was there was a a big industry of cricket journalism. Yep. Uh, and that all exists now in the archives of local newspapers yes. and national newspapers. Cricket um, journalism is some of the best journalistic writing that there is, yep. I would argue. Yep, no, I would completely agree with you. And um, there's diaries as well, because yep. they, the, the interesting thing about cricketers is they travel. Yep. They're actually a gift for historians. So you're not, a lot of the time, someone, say, in 1910 might be working in, I don't know, Maidenhead in Surrey in a factory, and they stay there their entire lives. Cricketers move around move around the country and then they move around other countries and move around the world and so they they're like little gifts from historians tootling off and then keeping their diaries telling us what's going on all over the world through their through their cricketers prism now and there's one thing i want to talk about i've just sent you an email i saw that let's look at that team picture Mm. right yes now i'm obsessed with these so um the one historical source that you get with cricket the uh, team photographs. Lovely. Right, any idea what's going on here? This is a cricket team. <laughs> yes, it's a cricket team. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. I'll give you a clue. They look at the guy eight, on the far nine, right. Ten, what kind 11, of hat's 12. he wearing? <laughs> at the far right, a sailor hat. Yes, very good. Yes. And top left. Uh, oh, gosh. Officers, uh, sailor, officers hat. Yeah. sailor hat. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a naval crew. Uh, it's a naval it's a crew. Uh, uh, excellent. And, um, it had to come back to <laughs> maritime cricket. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then who, who, have we, who have we got at the front here? Let's have a look. Who have we got there? Ship's dog. So this comes from the truly excellent Robley Brown diaries. First up is that someone's called Robley, which is a wonderful name. Um, guys, if you want to look at these, you need to join the Navy Records Society. Um, 
navyrecords.org.uk and it is a truly wonderful thing. They've been publishing British Naval Records since 1893. Um, And there's an online magazine. It costs us 20 quid to join. And um, this is one of the examples of of things. So someone's... This is um, Jack Tannett. Um, He is Robley's nephew and he's been sitting on these photographs. And there's a post on Robley's Sporting Diaries. Um, from around about 1900, he's all over the world. He's in China, he goes to naval Jim Carner, wide variety of sports. Anyway, um, he keeps a diary about his... He was a great cricketer, Rob Lee. Mm. Um, he was a surgeon, mm. uh, which is interesting. He got on very well, very um, nice chap. So here's, here's a, just a couple of um, excerpts from his diary. Uh, 1899, April the 25th, the day after my birthday, James. There um why hey hey? Why hey why? Sorry. Umpired in cricket match to the Centurion. Officers versus the men. So interesting um, social split there. The former one. Um. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 1899, two days later, again at YHAY, cricket match, officers versus men, another one managed to secure no fewer than four catches. Men dispatched us badly, so they got spanked by by their men. Um, Then we have got, so they're different ships playing each other. So different types of um, different types of match as well. But I wanted to draw your attention to this photograph because uh, what's your knowledge of polar explorers like? Uh, poor. Poor. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Okay. Um, so we've just talked about officers versus men um, playing cricket match. But in this team, there are nine officers and there are two ratings. And it was very common for ships like this to field mixed sporting teams. It was a way for them to, you know, you keep, mixed class team build. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and you can find out a variety of things about the photograph. So the, the guy's hat on the right actually identifies his ship as the Royal Arthur. So you know what ship they're on. But then next to him, you've got um, this chap called Lashley. And he is a stoker, just in the brackets. It says ST next to him. And he is William Lashley, who was the well-known polar explorer. Decorated member of both Scots Antarctic expeditions, both of them, and who was serving in that ship, the Royal Arthur, in 1893 to 1895. Mm. Um, so you have these 
pictures, and there are lots and lots of them. So everyone was very proud of them. They copied them, and they kept them in their diaries. And it's a way of seeing the faces of the people on the ship. So often with, with the Royal Navy things, you have just lists of men. You don't know exactly who they are. Mm. Uh, but it was, um, it was one of the members of the Navy Records Society said, that is Lashley, the polar explorer. So a new bit of discovery there. And he wrote some really interesting diaries. And if people wanted to see that photograph, we'll post it, won't we? Yes, we will. Excellent, excellent. Well, I want to go back to the Wisdom uh, Almanacs, um, because I think this connects us to train spotting and memory, hmm. um, in, in that it's the kind of like, it's the sort of geeky side of, of history. It's that, um, it's the stats. And these these are tremendous little volumes, and over 100, well over 150 uh, now, um, and they were founded in 1864 by the English cricketer uh, John Wisdom, and they were supposed to be a, a competitor to Lily White's um, The Guide to Cricketers, mm-hmm. um, and they are just full of all sorts of information uh, about cricket and about that season. They're published just before the cricket, the new cricket season. And they include uh, sections on awards, records. There's then a big section on English cricket where they give summaries of minor counties, second 11 universities, school and premier club cricket, as well as the Village Cup, mm-hmm. would you believe? There's overseas cricket, something on law and administration. There are even book reviews of the year. So they're full of all sorts of things. But what I really want to talk about with these is the collectability. And what's fascinating about cricket is the way in which a lot of the memorabilia gets collected. Yeah. Um, and it's called Cricketana. Um, and, and Wisdom Annuals, or Almanacs, traded hands, for, traded money for quite a lot of dosh. Um, so, for example, if you're looking for one of the first published annuals, uh, 1864, they can swap hands for as much as £5,000. And apparently, um, W.G. Grace's own signed uh, wisdoms were discovered in a trunk in Canada and they sold for £150,000. Mm. Um, but it's not, just, it's not just wisdoms. It's all sorts of things that are, that are traded for a lot of money. Um, you know, um, cricket bats, balls, um, paintings that are that are signed. Anything like that is, you know, is fetches a lot of money. Fred Truman's um, cap, um, no, Fred Truman's ball that claimed he. It's claimed that he bowled his three hundredth Test wicket. Um, sold in 1964 for £10,000. And there's a wonderful... If you go online and have a look at the Cricket Collection, the Lily White Family Museum. The Lily Whites are a very old uh, cricketing family, uh, some of the sort of first... Um, some of the first uh, English cricketers. Uh, John Lily White, uh, his cricketer's companion, James Lily White's Cricketer's Annual. Um, they have a brilliant uh, museum... Um, if you have a look at it, it's called. If you just Google the Lily White Family Museum, um, it is full of cricket bats, gloves, equipment bags, all sorts of things that are signed, and there are old photographs that are signed. Um, some of my favourites are. There's a picture here of old Lily White at Lords. Uh, there are a selection of cricket balls. There are match stumps. 
And down further down, there are a ton of old cricket bats that have been signed by various uh, people. Fred Titmus uh, here, Middlesex and England. Uh, what have we got? Jack Robertson, Middlesex and England, uh, 1947 to 52. Um, a Lily White Froud Elephant trademark presentation cricket bat. I mean, just a whole load of things. And down here, we've got a pair of padded cricket leg guards by Lily White as well. We've got a registered scoring book. We've got a cricket bag that is again signed. Um, and what have we got further down here? We've got, uh, have a look at this, a cricket belt buckle from the 1870 England Tour of Australia. So it's a huge about amount of material culture. Huge amount of material culture, and it's about and it's about collectability and memorabilia. And you know, we we talk about objects of memorialization in our live show, and we talk about you know Wellington's hair, you know, and people wanting to buy something that is connected to somebody who is famous. And so it so it's the history of memorabilia, uh, and in particular cricketing memorabilia. Um, and there is a there's a great. Um, website that I was looking at earlier on, which is called Cricketing Memorabilia, um, which is just an extraordinary, the Cricket Memorabilia Society. This is a society that literally is there um, to help people um, find memorabilia. And its objectives are to provide a forum, including regular meetings for members to discuss and debate collecting and identifying memorabilia, to attract former Test and County cricketers and others to our meetings, uh, to sign memorabilia, um, to produce a regular, informative and amusing quality illustrated magazine, to organise auctions of high quality, excellent value items, to encourage support deserving valid research, to produce ad hoc items, etc., uh, to work towards maintaining fair and reliable prices. So, I mean, it's it's out there. Yeah, and so, I mean, part of the point is that a his, part of the history of cricket is to study it, the, the the growth of cricket collecting Yes, as much as it is going to these cricket places and yes. um, looking at all the variety of stuff that's there that you can then, you can pick apart and look at. I'm looking at this now and there are some wonderful cartoons um, and the way that Englishness is being presented across the period. Yes. Uh, and the way that cricket is being manipulated and used as a tool for, for cartoonists. Yeah. yeah. I like that belt buckle. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Have a look at that other email I sent you. I did. Same I email, saw it. Same thing. I saw it. This is cool. This is very cool. This is a belt buckle as well, isn't it? Where, what's the date of that? Uh, we don't know, but we think about 1780. 1780? Yeah. Uh, it's massively interesting, this. It is. This is a belt buckle that was found in the, a gravel pit of the River Tweed, which is a river that's positively awash with history. Yes. Anyway, um, famous border river. Um, I went and mentioned, I did a bit of filming up there at Norham Castle, one of those famous castles that um, is besieged lots and lots of different times. And it's over 12 times, I think. It finally fell to James IV in 1513, just before Flodden. Hmm. Um, and so much of that, of the river, 18 miles of that river is the border between England and Scotland. So someone about 10 years ago was given a metal detector and he just poodled about in the River Tweed. Everyone else is kind of fishing for salmon and stuff. And he finds this buckle, right? And it is, can you describe what's going on here or shall I help you through it? Uh, let me get it up. So it is, uh, 
it looks like somebody who, from what I can see, he's holding a cricket bat. He's holding a cricket bat. Look at the stumps behind him. What's happening The stumps have been knocked down. There's a ball smack in the middle of them, right, right so in middle stump. The key, bales key have point. been flying. He's been bowled. Okay. Second key point, he is batting. Yes. Okay. Third key point is, um, he. can you make out that he's got a collar around his neck? Ah. Oh. He's got a slave collar around his neck. Oh, no, I couldn't, no. Okay. Uh, like it's a necklace. De- it's very faded, but no, it's, it's, a, it's actually a very distinctive um, naval slave collar. Ah. Right? Um, just above the cricket bat is a what? Um, Pointy house. Yeah, it looks like a windmill. There we go. It's a windmill. Particular type of windmill, windmill used for crushing sugar cane. Ah, is this the West Indies? This is the West Indies. More ah. specific than that, this is Barbados. Ah. So this is the earliest surviving evidence of someone playing cricket outside of England. It's the earliest surviving evidence of anyone playing any sport in the Americas. Um, it's of a slave playing cricket on Barbados, which was then a British plantation. So it was found in the River Tweed and just up from where it was found, just up river from where it was found, was one of the houses of the Hotham family. Huge, ancient English family, many of whom were in the Royal Navy, one of whom was governor of Barbados. Not only that, but they also were cricket mad. (laughs) Um, and so the governor of Barbados, it must have been his kind of great, 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 great grandson or something, went on to have a first class career in cricket. He was an admiral in the Navy, but he was also a first class cricketer. And so the assumption is that this has somehow fallen off a member of the Hotham family, possibly even William Hotham, um, who was governor of Barbados in the 1780s during the American Revolution. He took part in the Battle of St. Lucia. Nice. Anyway. What's super interesting about this, uh, not only is this about discovery and it's finding things in rivers, which I love. I think I'd, I'd like to do. Yeah. I'd like to do a TV Swords series on finding in things Ooh. in rivers. Right. So when they started playing cricket in the West Indies, the plantation owners and the sons of the plantation owners and the white workers would bat. It's important having matching. If you've ever played with kids on the beach, you'll know that actually, if you've got a good batsman, it's the worst possible thing to be the fielder because you just run around collecting yeah. the ball. That's what happened. The slaves went around the boundary and picked up the ball that it was, that was hit beyond the boundary and threw it back in so that the white people could carry on playing. Right. That's definitely how they got into it. But at the same time, the slaves were practising cricket because they were enjoying the game they wanted yep. to play. Um, so the depiction of a slave actually batting is deliberately subversive because they wouldn't have batted in any kind of match. Right. Um, but they were enjoying taking up the game themselves and giving it their own flavour mm, and mm, flair. Mm. So it's, a, it's an amazing buckle that's got all sorts of kind of complex stories that you can, you can unpick. Which begs the question of who's making the buckle. Who's making the buckle, making why they're wearing and, it. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and it's also all to do with hurricanes, because if this is Barbados in the 17, just before 1780, probably seven, um, there was a massive hurricane that tore through the West Indies in the 1780s, and we know that it destroyed all of the windmills and basically most of the, the tall palm trees at the right. There's an enormously tall palm tree, um, which makes us think that it's just before the hurricane that went through the Caribbean in the 1780s. Right. It's a smashing thing. Hmm. Very good. OK, I want to talk very briefly about technology. And we're so used nowadays to the third umpire in technology. Um, yeah, and all sorts of... Um, you know, wizard camera tricks. 
So, you know, cameras in the stumps so that you can actually see from a batsman's eye view the ball yeah. coming in. But technology used to help um, make the game more enjoyable to, to watch and also um, easier to umpire and, and, um, and, kind of, and judge. But what I'm interested in is some of the earlier technologies. Um, I remember the first time I, I noticed my, um, my games teacher um, when I was playing for the school. Um, he would wear this sort of umpire's coat and in his pockets would have a series of stones, number of stones, six stones, and then would pass one across to the other. And I thought, what on earth is this about? And then I realised that it's because there are six balls in every over. And Simple just, counting he was literally, he was literally, <laughs> He was literally counting. But then this also got me to thinking about... Um, pockets. Listen to our thing on pockets. About, That's a cracker. About, about pockets, but then also about hand signals and umpires' hand signals. Okay. Um, so there's a whole there's a whole history of umpires' hand signals. Um, what's this? That's six. That's a six. Okay. What's this? Bye. Yeah. Oh, very good. What's this? One short. Uh, short run. Yeah. Uh, what's this? I've no idea. New ball. Oh, you're uh, new ball. Okay. What's Great. this? Um, I've, I've stop play. No ball. What's oh, this? Okay, uh, four. Four. <laughs> What's this? Uh, dead ball. Oh, very good. Oh, you've got it there in front of you. No, I haven't. I'm, okay. I'm doing, I'm What's this? Uh, vampire corpse. Dead vampire body. Vampire corpse. Revoke last signal. Okay. What's this? Uh, one. Uh, oh, how's that? Out. Out. Oh, out. out. Sorry. Yes. No, out. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Wide. Wide. And the last one is leg by. Leg by. There's a very interesting history. Oh, it's of fascinating. And do you know why I'm interested in that? Um, because um, who's that eccentric racing commentator, uh, John McCreary? John McCreary, oh, who sadly passed away. He just this sadly week. passed away. Yes. But he became famous for when he was talking about his, when he was doing the commentary about the horses that were coming on, he would do his hand signals as he was saying mm. the, the odds are nine to four, mm. the odds are three to two, whatever mm. it was. And those are called tic tac yes. hand signals. Yes. Um, and I, I just was idly looking at it. They're amazing. They're so complicated. Um, so I think we should do something on hand signals. We should. Uh, I've got a manual of seamanship from the uh, early 19th century behind you, and that's full of hand signals as well. We should also do gesture. Yeah, he's swearing at me now. <laughs> Thanks, James. That's a great one. Brilliant. That's really, really, really inspired me. So we can say that the history of cricket is actually all about collecting. It's yes. about inequality. It's about perceptions of national history. It's about polar explorers. Slavery. Slavery, hand signals. It's about geekiness. It's about technology. Yeah, um, and uh, hurricane. Yep. And um, with wisdom. Wisdom and wis wisdom. wisdom in wisdom. Yes, yeah, it and, is. And historical sources are everywhere. Mm. That's brilliant. Yeah, well done. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Um, do please follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at UnexpectedPod. I'm um, at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And um, we are, James and I are trying to do something fairly significant here. We're trying to change the way that everyone thinks about the past by demonstrating that all of these strange things have histories. They all link together. And we really need your help for equipment for the cost of editing to keep this podcast going. So please find us at patreon.com forward slash unexpected. Or you can follow us on historiesoftheunexpected.com and find us on the support page. We would really appreciate anything you can help us with. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed this. Bye. Bye.